Welcome to the reading of the Quad City Times for Friday, January 26th. All material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of people with print disabilities. Your readers today are Jim Hoffman, and my name is Rachel Mithelman. And here is Jim with our first story. Thanks, Rachel. Um, We've got an article here on the front page of the Quad City Times written by Sarah Watson, a reporter for the Quad City Times. Bohannon holds Ag Roundtable. Uh, House candidate meets with farmers. Democratic candidate Christina Bohannon pledged to make passing a farm bill among her top priorities if elected to represent Iowa in Congress. Bohannon, the sole Democrat so far running for Iowa's first congressional district representing southeast Iowa, held an agriculture-focused roundtable Thursday in Walcott with about a dozen farmers, rural landowners, and a former state USDA official. We do actually need to get it passed, Bohannon said, and that needs to be a priority for our Iowa representatives, is to get that passed. That's long been considered job one of Iowa representatives, is to get a farm bill, and it seems like that's kind of fallen by the wayside for the political stuff. Lawmakers in Washington with House Republicans' turmoil over the speakership and their slim majority failed to pass a farm bill before the end of the year. Instead, Congress extended the former bill uh, for an additional year. A farm bill is a package of legislation that's passed roughly every five years that funds crop insurance programs that support biofuels and forestry and low-income food programs. The last Farm Bill was passed in 2018 and was set to expire in 2023 before Congress extended it to September of this year. Roundtable members included former State Senator Kevin Kenney, former Muscatine County Supervisor, Tom Furlong, and John Whitaker, former head of the state's USDA Farm Service Agency. Discussion topics included carbon capture pipelines, crop insurance, cover crop incentives, water quality, concerns over the average age of farmers, and making agriculture more accessible for young people. The cost of the land, there's no young kid could afford $3.7 million for 200 acres, said Jerry Moore, who farms near Eldridge. One solution proposed by Whitaker is to reduce the number of acres where yields could be transferred under crop insurance. One of the rules of crop insurance allows is, one of the rules of crop insurance allows is if I go out to rent a farm that's less than 20% of what I'm currently farming, I can transfer a lot of yields, Whitaker said. If I'm farming 10,000 acres, that's 2,000 acres a year I can add in transferred yields. 
But if I'm farming 100 acres, that's 20 acres I can add. So that's a detriment to younger producers getting started. Put a cap on the number of acres that a person can add and carry your yield. More cut in to suggest reducing the amount of subsidies. Whitaker agreed, noting that while he was at the USDA, he saw a lot of crop insurance subsidies for individuals that totaled well over $1 million. Subsidize someone a new combine every year when someone else can't afford one, Whitaker said. We have to make a decision. Furlong said he believed policies in the Farm Bill subsidized larger farmers taking over smaller farms and contributing to consolidation in the industry. Bohannon also said she was not a big fan of an inheritance tax, which she said could impact how farms and properties could be passed down to a younger generation. Jerry and Susan uh, Stofan, who attended Thursday's roundtable, own several acres in rural Scott County and are part of the proposed path of a carbon capture pipeline proposed by Wolf Carbon Solutions. The Stofans don't want the pipeline on their property and don't believe the carbon capture technology will be an effective solution to climate change. Other proposals included offering more incentives for cover crops and no-till farming and requiring minimum buffers between crops and streams to prevent soil and fertilizer runoff into Iowa's streams. Also on the front page, homicides are investigated. This is by Anthony Watt of the Quad City Times. Quad City Times. A man and woman whose bodies were found by Moline police on Wednesday were shot to death. Officers found bodies of Stephen Herring, age 55, and Donna Erickson, age 79, during two different calls Wednesday morning, according to the Moline Police Department. Police found Herring around 9.41 a.m., at a residence in the 3300 block of 25th Avenue. Officers found Erickson at about 10.37 a.m. at a residence in the 1800 block of 46th Street. Both had gunshot wounds, and their deaths have been ruled homicides. During the investigation, detectives learned Erickson's son was Chad Hillier, age 55, of Alito, the department said. Hillier was also a close friend of Herring. Evidence indicated his possible involvement in the killings. During the investigation, police recovered video footage that placed a vehicle belonging to Hillier near both addresses early Wednesday, according to the department. Officers also gathered other evidence, including telephone records and interviews. Around 7.30 p.m., Moline police officers, Illinois State Police Troopers, and Mercer County Sheriff's Office deputies executed a search warrant at Hillier's Aledo property, the police department said. The team did not find Hillier there, but found a shell casing. 
there were also casings recovered when Herring and Erickson's bodies were found. Moline police took the casings to the Davenport Police Department for processing through the National Integrated Ballistic Information Network, the department said. That examination indicated that the casings were used in the same handgun. At around 9 p.m. Wednesday, Coralville police officers found a body in a vehicle on a rural road near Tiffin, according to the Moline police. Investigators identified the dead person as Hillier and determined that he had a gunshot wound that appeared self-inflicted. The Rock Island County Coroner's Office had scheduled autopsies on Herring and Erickson for Friday. Both the Moline and Coralville Police continued their investigations Thursday afternoon, the Moline Police Department said. The Moline Police Department asked that anyone with information about the case contact investigators at this number, area code 309-797-0401. Persons with information can also call the Quad Cities Chapter of Crime Stoppers at area code 309-762-9500, or they can use the P3 Tips app. Multiple other agencies assisted Moline's police in the investigation, according to the department. They were the Rock Island County Sheriff's Office, the Rock Island County State's Attorney's Office, the Johnson County Medical Examiner's Office, and the Rock Island and Milan Police Departments. Thanks, Rachel. Uh, Article um, from the Iowa Legislature uh, on Railroad Safety. This written by Tom Barton of the Lee Gazette uh, Des Moines Bureau. Lawmakers advanced legislation Thursday that would require railroads to deploy train defect detectors along their branch lines in the state amid concerns about increased train traffic in eastern Iowa and a derailment of toxic chemicals last year in Ohio. Senate File 512 requires a railroad company to install and maintain at least one sensor every 15 miles out on a uh, branch line to detect axle and brake abnormalities on a passing train and alert the crew of any detected abnormality. The bill also creates a penalty between $500 and $5,000 for each time a train crosses or passes by a sensor that fails to notify the train crew of a detected defect. Subsequent violations would result in a penalty of between five and $10,000. The move comes in the wake of a fiery derailment last year of a train carrying toxic chemicals in eastern Ohio that set off evacuations a federal investigation, and concerns about the effect the derailment and fire could have on health and the environment. It also comes amid concerns from eastern Iowa communities about the impact of increased train traffic, resulting from last year's merger of Canadian Pacific and Kansas City Southern to create the first single-line freight rail network connecting Mexico, the United States, and Canada. According to the companies, 
the biggest traffic increases will be will be between Sabula, an Iowa island city in the Mississippi River, and Kansas City, Missouri, adding about 14.4 trains per day from 8 to roughly 22 by 2027. The train tracks run along the riverfronts of several Mississippi River towns, including Clinton, Comanche, Princeton, LeClaire, Bettendorf, Davenport, and Muscatine. Seven cities in Iowa agreed to set settlement payments from Canadian Pacific in exchange for not commenting publicly on the merger, including a $10 million payout to Davenport. Other cities that accepted agreements were Bettendorf, Muscatine, LeClaire, Clinton, Washington, and Fruitland. Senator Cindy Winkler, Dem uh, Democrat from Davenport, referenced the train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio, as well as the railroad merger. She also raised concerns that the bill applies only to branch lines and not main lines operated by railroads in the state. In the Quad Cities area, we have to be very cognizant of the number of trains coming through with the merger, she said. And I think East Palestine in Ohio has taught us some lessons in regard to the importance of detectors. I was hoping we might be able to expand this a little bit and make sure we are well informed and well protected with our rail lines. An initial report from the National Transportation Safety Board said an overheated wheel bearing was to blame for the Ohio derailment. An alarm did not sound to alert the crew to check a hot axle until the train passed a sensor not far from where it ultimately derailed. The sensor placed by Norfolk Southern alongside its tracks registered that the wheel bearing was 253 degrees above the ambient temperature, the report said. Representatives for railroad companies opposed the Iowa bill, uh, arguing they're they've voluntarily made dramatic safety improvements across every aspect of the industry. Larry Lloyd, senior director of the U.S. Government Affairs for Canadian Pacific, Kansas City, noted derailments had decreased in the past two decades. According to data released last year by the Federal Railroad Administration, the nation's train accident rate is down 28% since 2000. And the last decade was the safest on record. Mainline railroad accident rates declined 44% since 2000. The derailment rate is down 31% since 2000 for all railroads. That has all happened because of the technology that railroads are privately investing in and deploying on our own, Lloyd said. We've all deployed these detectors already along our system, he said, in areas that best make uh, sense based on data and the condition, geography, and use of the line. He also noted the bill takes about a limited uh, amount, talks about a limited amount of sensors, saying the railroad uses six different types of sensors 
that it deploys along its branch and main lines. If the state wants to play a role in this, we'd be happy to have a discussion about partnerships we could make that would encourage additional deployment of technology that would bring additional investment to Iowa, Lloyd said. That would bring in additional innovation that Iowa can be a leader on. Those would be con uh, conversations we would want to have, not talking about something we've al we're already doing. Railway representatives also raised concerns about the cost of installing the sensors on Iowa's short-line railroads. Safety is always a cost-benefit analysis, said Brad Epperly, representing BNSF Railway, Railway Company. And we can't eliminate all risk, and rail safety is far greater than our roads. Chris Smith with Smart Transportation, which represents railroad workers, supports the legislation. Smith said staffing was thin and safety had suffered as railroads cut employees and stretched the length of trains. There is no federal standard or regulation for detectors, he told lawmakers, adding there are hundreds of miles of track in the state of Iowa that have no detectors. All these companies want to run their own standards and say they are doing the best, Smith said. And East Palestine uh, quite simply proved that it is not the best system out there, that there needs to be some oversight. Smith said the bill did not go far enough and should be amended to include other sensors to monitor wheel bearings, temperature, and dragging equipment. Michael uh, Walker, with the Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers and Train, train Men, has spent 20 years on the railroad. The detectors that are on the track we go over, we depend on those to keep us safe, he said. An airline pilot can visually inspect a plane before takeoff, but that's not feasible for locomotive engineers with trains that can be up to three miles long. I think this is a very important bill to protect the trains uh, and the people that run tracks, the employees, Walker said. Although lawmakers advanced the bill, members of the three-person subcommittee said they had reservations. From the Illinois um, side of the river, education funding is the topic. Budget increase of $653 million is sought. This is by Peter Hancock of the Capitol News, Illinois, <clears throat> and comes from Springfield. The Illinois State Board of Education endorsed a budget request Wednesday that includes a $653 million increase in funding for pre-K through 12 public schools. It's a request that lawmakers may find hard to accommodate in a year when the state faces a projected $891 million budget deficit. Pre-K through 12 education spending currently makes up about one-fifth of the state's entire general revenue fund budget. The proposed increase, if approved, would bring the state's total GRF spending on public education to just over $11 billion. 
We were pleased to hear that the board, even in a tight budget year, continues to prioritize necessary investments for districts and students across the state. Gerson Ramirez, a lobbyist for the advocacy group Advance Illinois, said during the meeting. The proposed budget includes a $350 million increase in evidence-based funding, the minimum increase required under a 2018 law that calls for gradually increasing the state's share of the cost of public education while focusing new money on the state's most poorly funded districts. That includes $300 million for direct funding for the qualifying districts and $50 million that is distributed in the form of property tax relief grants. The law calls for continuing to increase funding each year until all districts are funded at 90% or more of their target adequacy level. When the law went into effect, nearly one in five school districts were being funded at or below 60% of their adequacy level. Today, no districts are being funded below the 60% level, but the state still has a long way to go before reaching the goal of having all districts at or above 90% of adequacy. According to a report that accompanied the budget proposal, it would take another $2.5 billion in EBF to reach that goal. In addition to the increase in evidence-based funding, which districts use to enhance their general operating budgets, ISBE's request includes about $300 million in new or increased funding for several specific categories of school expenses. The largest of those is a proposed $112 million increase, or nearly 26%, for a program that reimburses school districts for the cost of providing transportation to students with disabilities. That would be enough to cover about 84% of the total cost for that category of transportation funding, which is roughly the same percentage the state was paying before the COVID-19 pandemic. The package also calls for a $75 million increase in early childhood education funding to continue Governor J.B. Pritzker's Smart Start Illinois initiative, a multi-year program that seeks to eliminate early childhood and preschool deserts for three- and four-year-old children by 2027. That money would enable state-funded preschools to reach an additional 5,000 children next year. State officials estimate that total enrollment in those preschools will grow to nearly 114,000 in 2025, an increase of more than 17,000 since 2023. ISBE's budget plan also calls for addressing the pressure some districts are facing because of the large number of international migrants arriving in Illinois. Over the past two years, state officials estimate the number of newcomers in Illinois has grown nearly 85 percent to about 36,200. Since August of 2022, more than 34,000 migrants have been bused or flown to Illinois by order of Texas Governor Greg Abbott after crossing that state's southern border. Newcomers are defined as students aged 3 through 21 who were born outside the United States and who have been attending one or more schools in the U.S. for less than three full academic years. 
The proposal calls for $35 million in new funding for a line item called Supporting Newcomers. Thanks, Rachel. I've got a couple of shorter articles here, one a, a bit somber and the other one uh, kind of light. Uh, Illinois State Police uh, uh, highway deaths declined by 7%. This written by Jennifer Fuller of the Capital News, Illinois. Uh, fatal crashes on interstates and expressways in Illinois fell by 7% in 2023 compared to the previous year and shootings were down more than 30%. Illinois State Police report the declines came at the same time troopers were beefing up their enforcement on the state's transportation arteries. Arrests were up 3%, gun recoveries up 12%, and vehicle recoveries were up 7%. Over the past several years, we have really demanded more of ourselves, making the tough decisions executing and empowering the most effective law enforcement tool there is, the well-trained professional crime-fighting trooper, ISI Director Brendan Kelly said in a news release. Challenges remain, but we are headed in a good direction. ISP also confiscated more than 10,000 pounds of illegal drugs and four and a half million dollars in what they call illicit criminal currency. Technology, technology also plays a large role in enforcement efforts and ISP plans to install additional license plate readers, cameras that can identify license plates on vehicles that are wanted or suspected in crimes. Those automated readers can send alerts to law enforcement when a plate is recognized. In 2023, ISP added 139 automated license plate readers to state roads, including 78 cameras in St. Clair County, 4 in Champaign County, 4 in Morgan County, and 53 cameras in Cook County. Those were added to an existing 289 cameras in the Chicago area. ISP plans to add cameras in Macon, Madison, Peoria, Bureau, Lake, and Winnebago counties in 2024. And then we have uh, Celebrity Sutherland Visits Davenport. This written by Gannon Hannevold of the Quad City Times. A movie star was walking the downtown Davenport streets on Wednesday. Kiefer Sutherland, the actor who broke out in roles with films like the Lost Boys and Stand By Me dropped into various Davenport shops this week. Laura Heath, who runs the Trash Can Annie's Vintage Store in Davenport, shared a selfie with the action star on Facebook and Instagram on Wednesday night. It was such a pleasure meeting with you and getting a few minutes to chat, she wrote in the caption, adding that the actor mentioned putting ragged uh, records and trash can Annie stickers on his guitar. The post caused quite the stir among local cinephiles and pop culture buffs. Beyond trash can Annie, um, 
various spots on downtown Davenport's Motor Row confirmed that the 24 actors stopped in. Employees at Rag, Ragged and the bar at uh, the Last Picture House were coy about their interactions but said they spotted Sutherland too. Ragged staff member Sarissa Bentley said that the movie star browsed the record shop, which shares its space with Trash Can Annie in the midst of a midday lull on Wednesday. He laid low, she said, and most of those working the store floor didn't even notice he was there until Heath struck up a conversation with him. Heath declined a request for comment. Sutherland also stopped into the Barnes & Noble at North Park Mall on Wednesday, though he was in and out quickly, uh, according to the bookstore staff. While Sutherland, the son of actor Donald Sutherland, has made his name on the silver screen, he also has ties to the Quad Cities through his music career. Sutherland started the independent label Ironworks Records with musician and, and Quad City native Judy Cole, who co-wrote Sutherland's debut album, The Twangy Down in a Hole, released in 2016. It is unclear why Sutherland was in town, but still, a few Quad Cities businesses got to briefly go Hollywood this week. It's time to turn to the obituaries in today's Quad City Times. Um, there are several pendings and then three um, fuller obituaries. I'll read the pendings and the first obituary, Jim, if you will pick up the other two. First, the pending services. Sheila R. Arrington, age 60, of East Moline, died on January 24th. Shirley J. Burns, age 85, of East Moline, passed away January 25th. Charles L. Griffith, age 74, of Bettendorf, passed away Wednesday, January 24th. Adele Hedrick, age 87, of DeWitt, died on Tuesday, January 23rd. Bertha Lee Kelso, Kelso age 76, of Moline, passed away on Wednesday, January 24th, and Deborah Wicker, age 63, of Cambridge, Illinois, died on Tuesday, January 23rd. Then the first of three fuller obituaries here comes from Davenport, and it is for Kenneth August Buker, Sr. Kenneth August Buker, Sr., age 84, of Davenport, passed away Tuesday, January 23rd at the University of Iowa Hospitals in Iowa City. Services will be Tuesday, January 30th at noon at the Rungi Mortuary. Visitation will be Tuesday, the 30th, from 10 until the service time at noon. His final resting place will be in Fairmount Cemetery in Davenport's, Davenport. Memorials may go to the family. Online condolences may be left at rungimortuary.com. Ken was born March 13, 1939, in Davenport, Iowa, the son of Kenneth August and Gertie Buker. 
He graduated from Davenport Central High School. Ken worked for Oscar Meyer for 40 years before retiring. He married Sally Ann Welsenbach on February 27, 1960, in Davenport. He loved to ride motorcycles and went on many trips with the guys to Sturgis. He loved going to car shows and the casinos, where he enjoyed listening to the live music. His greatest joy was his family and spending time with all of them. Those left to honor his memory include his loving wife, Sally, his sons, Ken Jr. and James, spouse Terry, all of Davenport, grandchildren Nathan, Matthew, and Sarah, great-grandchildren Josie, Kristen, and Talon, a sister-in-law, Darlene Buker of California, numerous nieces and nephews, and his beloved cat named Magic. He was preceded in death by his parents, a sister, Kathy Youngblood, and brothers David, Larry, and Fred. May he rest in peace. And we have uh, Carol A. Bean, 82, of Bettendorf, formerly of Rock Island, died on January 23rd at the Clarissa Cook Hospice House in Bettendorf. A funeral service will be at 10 o'clock uh, a.m. on Wednesday, January 31st at Grace Presbyterian Church, 2324 18th Avenue in Rock Island. Visitation will be from 4 to 6 p.m. on Tuesday, January 30th at Whelan Presley Funeral Home and Crematory, 3030 7th Avenue in Rock Island. Burial will take place at Memorial Park Cemetery, Rock Island. Memorials may be made to Grace Presbyterian Church, the Bettendorf Family Museum, or a charity of your choice. Carol was born on July 31, 1941, in Dayton, Ohio, a daughter of John H. and Caroline Emma Geppert Ellison. She married C. Ernest Bean on September 10, 1961, at the Grinnell United Methodist Church in Grinnell. Carol graduated from Fairview High School, Dayton, Ohio, in 1959. She then attended Earlham College, Richmond, Indiana, for three years before transferring to the University of Iowa, where she earned her B.A. degree in elementary education in 1963. She taught fourth grade at Coralville Central Elementary School until 1965. She also taught at the University of Iowa Hospital School during the summer months. In 1965, Carol and Ernie moved to Rock Island, Illinois. After raising their three children, Carol resumed her career in 1986 with Blackhawk Area Special Education District, retiring in 1998 as administrator of the preschool screening program. Carol was a member of Grace Presbyterian Church in Rock Island, where she served as a deacon. She was also active in community service, including after-school tutoring programs for children in the elementary grades. She had been a member of the Rock Island Arsenal Golf Club. Carol enjoyed being a wife, a mother, a grandmother, and a great-grandmother. 
She also enjoyed traveling, including several train trips on the American uh, Orient Express. Her hobbies included reading, painting, needlework, and caring for her pets. She also enjoyed uh, boating on the Mississippi River. She is survived by her husband of 62 years, Ernie of Bettendorf, children Ernest E., uh, spouse Kathy Bean, Amherst, New Hampshire, Rebecca A., uh, spouse Tony Dick of uh, Rockford, Illinois, and Tammy L., uh, spouse Darren Neal of Milan, Illinois. Uh, grandchildren, J. Patrick Bean, Samuel O. Bean, J. Connor Bean, Allison S., uh, spouse Josh Pedroza, Tony A., Dick, uh, Brett S., Colonel, Stephanie L. Colonel, Scott J. Colonel, and Andrew J. Colonel. Great-grandson, uh, Emma Leo Pedroza, and sister, Judith E. Ray. She was preceded in death by her parents and a brother, John Allison, Jr. Carol's family would especially like to thank the staff of the Memory Support Center at the summit of uh, Bettendorf for the joy they brought her into her life since June of 2022. And online condolences, memories, and expressions of sympathy may be left for the family at Whelan, uh, Presley.com. Uh, and finally, we have Karen Crystal um, Nelson Went uh, of Norcross, Georgia, age 84, joined her Lord and Savior Jesus Christ on January 23rd after an extended illness. Karen was born November 9th, 1939, near Grand Mound, Iowa, to L. Vernon. Uh, Rosie and uh, V. Mardell uh, Henson Nelson. She was married to Lawrence M. Went on August 9, 1959, and shared 64 treasured years together. Mrs. Went was a faithful wife, exemplary mother, homemaker, and together with her husband Lawrence, they were foster parents to hundreds of children over nearly 40 years across four states. Karen is survived by her loving husband, Lawrence M. Went of Norcross, Georgia. Uh, children, including the Reverend Thomas uh, Went of Hudson, Florida, Todd Went of Asbury, Iowa, Deborah Baldwin of Lawrenceville, Georgia, Diana Flingston of Sussex, Wisconsin, and Paul Went of Stone Mountain, Georgia. Twelve grandchildren, ten great-grandchildren, uh, sisters-in-law, uh, Eleanor, Ellie, uh, Went, and many former foster children who will always consider her as mom. She was preceded in death by three sons, Brian, Jeremy, and Caleb, uh, son-in-law, the Reverend Michael uh, Flingston, uh, grandchildren, April Baldwin and Nicholas Baldwin, parents, uh, siblings, Russell and Judith Knutson, parents-in-law, uh, Carl and Minnie Went, brothers-in-law, Faye Knutson, Delbert Went, uh, Arlen Went, and Laverne Went. 
Visitation on Wednesday, January 31st, 2024 at 10.30 a.m. with funeral at 11.30 at Trinity Lutheran Church, 801 Washington Avenue in Loudoun, Iowa. The Reverend Daniel Redhage and Reverend Hiru uh, Gebramichael uh, officiating. Christian burial will take place at Trinity Lutheran Cemetery in Loudoun immediately following the funeral. Uh, lunch at the church immediately following the burial. Memorials in Karen's memory may be made to St. Mark Lutheran Church, 2110, Brockett Road, Tucker, Georgia, 30084, or your favorite children's charity. For the full obituary, please go to www.chapman.com. Turning to the opinion page of today's Quad City Times, um, first uh, a guest opinion piece from the Bloomberg News that says Ukraine needs more Western military aid. In nearly two years since Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the war has reached a critical phase. The failure of the U.S. and Europe to approve additional aid has left Ukraine perilously low on weaponry, ammunition, and manpower. With Russian President Vladimir Putin showing no signs of relenting, Western governments are now openly considering another option, seizing frozen Russian state assets and giving the proceeds to Ukraine. The idea of making Russia pay for its aggression with its own assets has undeniable moral and practical appeal. At a time of tightening budgets, it's an easier message to deliver to Western taxpayers than new funding packages. Proponents rightly want to help Ukraine, punish Putin, and bring an end to the war. Yet confiscating sovereign assets now could end up making Ukraine's predicament even worse. Some $300 billion in Russian central bank reserves have been immobilized by Western governments. Joe Biden's administration has introduced a bill that would authorize the president to confiscate Russian state assets held in the U.S., it has asked other members of the Group of Seven, which meets in February, to consider how frozen reserves in other countries can be legally repurposed to help Ukraine. In truth, little prevents the U.S. from authorizing such a transfer. It did so as recently as 2022, with frozen assets belonging to Afghanistan following the Taliban takeover. It seized Iraqi state assets in, 20, in 2003, a consensus among G7 countries, which collectively account for 44% of the world's gross domestic product, would increase the legitimacy of any move against Russian state assets. Yet, the circumstances and scale would make confiscation in Russia's case unique. For all its savagery in Ukraine, Russia is a recognized state with a long-standing government. Any confiscation will face court challenges by Russia in multiple countries. Ukraine would be unlikely to have access to the money for years, even decades, if those processes are respected. For now, there are better options for handling Russian assets. Most of the funds frozen by the U.S. and Europe are being held at the Brussels-based clearinghouse Euroclear. 
rather than attempt to claim possession of those assets, the European Union should adopt a windfall tax on the income made by depositories on Russia's frozen assets. Belgium already transfers to Ukraine the additional corporate tax revenue it collects from those immobilized assets. Repurposing the Euroclear profits would amount to several billion more euros a year. In the meantime, more than $110 billion in aid, monumental for Ukraine but a pittance compared to Western defense budgets, is being held up by a faction of hardline Republicans in the U.S. Congress and in Europe by Hungary's pro-Russian leader Viktor Orban. Embarking on a long and contested process to seize Russian assets may allow Western governments to claim they're doing something, but it won't help save Ukraine. And another opinion piece um, <clears throat> here on the opinion page. Uh, Haley's only hope is waiting for Trump to beat himself. This written by Paige Maston, who is the deputy opinion editor for the Charlotte Observer. The Republican presidential primary seems pretty much over, but try telling that to Nikki Haley. The former South Carolina governor, now Donald Trump's sole primary opponent, decisively lost Tuesday's primary in New Hampshire by more than 10 percentage points. Haley doesn't seem to think it's too late to win the nomination, though, and has no intention of dropping out of the race, saying this race is far from over and there are dozens of states left to go. Haley hasn't offered much of an explanation for why she's choosing to stay in a race she seems to have no shot of winning. Following a landslide victory in Iowa, <clears throat> excuse me, Trump won in nearly every demographic group in New Hampshire. Much of Haley's support came from independents who are able to vote in New Hampshire's Republican primary. No Republican has ever won their party nomination after losing both Iowa and New Hampshire. Haley knows all of this. She knows she can't beat Trump, and she won't. She's just waiting for him to beat himself. Trump has a lot of baggage, and while he has managed to outrun it so far, it's only a matter of time before it starts to catch up with him. Haley has said she wants to stay in the race at least through Super Tuesday, which also happens to be one day after the scheduled opening date of Trump's first uh, criminal trial, though it may be delayed. That trial, which involves charges of conspiring to obstruct the 2020 election, is only one chapter of Trump's legal troubles. The trial for his alleged mishandling of classified documents is scheduled for May. At some point, the U.S. Supreme Court will also rule on whether Trump can be disqualified from the ballot under the 14th Amendment, which could uh, limit his path to his party's nomination as well as to the presidency itself. A lot can happen between now and November, and if Trump's candidacy takes a hit somewhere along the way, Haley wants to be the one to step up in his place. That means she has to be the last woman standing. 
In the meantime, Haley has escalated her attacks on Trump, invoking his reputation for chaos and raising questions about his age. She renewed past calls for mental competency tests for politicians above the age of 75 and challenged Trump to face her on the debate stage. With Donald Trump, you have one bout of chaos after another, Haley warned in her speech Tuesday night. This court case, that controversy, this tweet, that senior moment. That's about the closest Haley has come to acknowledge that Trump is a liability. It's certainly the closest she's come to suggesting, albeit in a roundabout way, that Trump is a threat. It's easy to think that things may have been different had we seen this version of Haley much earlier but it probably would not have made any meaningful difference. It's difficult for Haley to come out swinging against Trump, lest she alienate the Republican base as Chris Christie did. Still, if she thinks that Trump's past may bring about his downfall, she should be clear about it. And she should be clear about why she's really staying in the race. At this point, the best Haley can hope for is a Trump implosion. Is that possible? Yes. Po probable? Who knows? Scandal certainly hasn't stopped Trump before. But until we know for sure, Haley doesn't appear to be going anywhere. We're going to turn to the sports page for the rest of the time we have left here. Um, looking at the television schedule, Coming up for the Iowa Hawkeyes, um, men's wrestling at Illinois today at 8. Um, women's basketball versus Nebraska Saturday at 1. The Illinois Fighting Illini versus Iowa in men's wrestling today versus Indiana in men's basketball Saturday at 2 and versus Minnesota women's basketball Sunday at 2. The Iowa State Cyclones, um, men's wrestling at Oklahoma today at 7. Um, men's basketball at Can versus Kansas Saturday at 12.30 p.m. And women's basketball versus West Virginia on Saturday at 1. And then the Quad City Storm uh, versus Macon today at 7.10 versus Macon tomorrow, Saturday at 7.10. And then the next time is versus Evansville on February 1st at 10 a.m. There's also some college gymnastics going on on ESPN2 and the SECN. And figure skating U.S. championships on USA at 3 o'clock and 7 o'clock on NBC. Um, the first story on the sports page is about girls wrestling. Move to Bettendorf pays off for Rogers. This by Matt Koss. Hannah Rogers experienced plenty of thrills during her three seasons wrestling at Wilton High School. She captured an Iowa wrestling coaches and official state championship two years ago, the first and only winner in program history. She compiled a state runner-up finish and was one of 15 finalists for the Dan Gable Iowa Ms. Wrestler of the Year last winter. 
Still, it was not enough. Rogers wanted more workout partners and stronger competition throughout the season to help elevate herself to another level. The 125-pound senior has found that at Bettendorf. There were a lot of things that were happening at Wilton, said Rogers, the only girl in Wilton's wrestling program two years ago and one of seven a year ago. I needed to be where I could succeed with a team, and so that is why I chose Bettendorf ultimately. It has paid off 100%. I've learned so much about wrestling, not just the physical aspect of it, but the mental side of things with it as well. I couldn't ask for a better team or support system. Ranked third in the state at her weight class, Rogers takes a 37-2 record into Friday's Super Regional Tournament in Cedar Rapids. Rogers reached 100 pins and 200 takedowns for her career last Saturday in claiming the 125-pound division at the Louisa Muscatine Invitational. Now she has her sights set on a big finish to the season in her high school career. Rogers seeks a regional championship and wants to cap it with a state championship next weekend in Coralville. I'm so hungry and so ready, Rogers said. I made a TikTok that has gone viral about this being the final chapter. The only way to go out is on top, and that's my goal. Rogers has at least five options for workout partners in the Bulldogs room. With Taylor Streif, 115 pounds, Nisa Selmani, 120, Alexis Peterson, 130, Morgan Streif at 135, and Isabella Gisa at 140. Taylor Streif is ranked sixth in the state and Peterson fourth. Selmani, Morgan Streif, and Gisa each have 29 wins or more this season. That room is competitive on a daily basis, Bettendorf coach Drew Sass said. It is a different girl that comes in each day and takes over. It isn't one girl dominating every day. The Bulldogs have wrestled a taxing schedule from the Dan Gable Donnybrook Invitational and Battle of Waterloo to post-holiday tournaments at Osage and Anamosa. It's presented challenges for Rogers and the Bettendorf team. I'm going to skip ahead a little bit because of time. Um, She's just a leader on and off the mat, Sass said of Rogers. She's a great person, great friend, great teammate, and everything you want in a captain. Like our whole team, she has a bubbly personality that helps when we go out and compete. We're wrestling loose and just competing, not so much worrying about winning and losing. Rogers is giving back to the sport, too. Less than 24 hours after winning the Louisa Muscatine Invitational, Rogers was officiating a youth tournament in the Quad Cities. She's been doing that on Sundays this winter. Longtime referee Adam Hargrave, who officiated Rogers' state championship win two years ago, mentioned to Rogers recently the need for more officials. I've learned so much about the sport, she said. There were rules I didn't even know about. Rogers, who began wrestling in seventh grade, wants to continue wrestling beyond high school, but has not decided where yet. She has aspirations of becoming a nurse. Schooling is very important to me, she said. I understand there is a life beyond wrestling, so I want to go to college and get my degree. First, she wants to help Bettendorf collect a team trophy at the state tournament and add a second individual championship to her resume. It won't be easy. Sad said, Sass said there are about eight schools in the team mix, 
As for Rogers, she could be on a collision course with Oakland Riverside's Molly Allen, one of the top 125-pounders in the country. We put together a schedule this year that was going to be difficult, Sass said, but the reason behind that was when we got to regionals and state, we should be used to that competition. It circles back to the reason why Rogers came to Bettendorf. Even my sophomore year when I won it, Rogers said, this is the most prepared for the postseason that I've ever been in high school, and I'm pleased with the season we've had here. Well, that brings us to the end of the Quad City Times for today. My name is Rachel Mithelman, and my partner at the microphone has been Jim Hoffman. You can listen to IRIS programs on any computer or smart device at any time at iowaradioreading.org. Thank you for listening to IRIS, Iowa's first and only radio reading service.